This is the Sunday morning message broadcast from Church of God Holiness in El Dorado Springs. You know, one of the more interesting conflicts between Jesus and Peter came right before Jesus was ready to kind of make his final trip into Jerusalem. And um, Jesus was preparing to go there, and uh, he said he was going to be mistreated, and then he said he was going to die for our sins on a cross. So he knew the plan, he was ready for the plan, and he was getting ready to charge into the plan. And everybody was on board except, well, I guess there weren't very many people on board. Uh, The disciples certainly weren't. And Peter really uh, was not behind this at all. In Matthew 16, 21, it says, From that time Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem And suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed. And on the third day, raised. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Saying, far be it from you, Lord, This shall never happen. It's as if Peter is saying, you know, Jesus, let's let's get this straight here. We're here to kill the Romans, not to have the Romans kill us. You're the Messiah. Pull it together. Away with this kind of negative talk about going and being mistreated and dying? I don't know where in the world, Jesus, you got this into your head that somehow you're going to be killed. That that is just not going to happen. Do you remember how Jesus responded to Peter? This had to be one of the more tense moments in all of Scripture. Jesus looked him in the eye, and in Matthew 16, 23, he said, get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me. For you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Man, can you imagine that? Can you imagine having Jesus look you right in the eye and call you Satan? I probably would have just melted right there and just kind of become a pool of mush. What a powerful statement on the part of Jesus. Peter, you're not only helping, not helping me, you are hindering me and the plan of God. Well, the story gets even more tense and more interesting because Jesus goes on and says this in Matthew 16, 24. Then Jesus told his disciples, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. It sounds like Jesus is inviting them to come along with him on the journey. And that if they're going to come after him, they have to deny themselves and they have to take up their cross and follow him. This must have just been more than Peter could handle. 
Because now Jesus seems to be asking them to walk the same path he is about ready to walk. Following Jesus all the way to death. You know, there's a little bit of Peter in all of us because I think we all have misconceptions about the Christian life and what it's all about. I mean, we understand the basics. We understand sin, forgiveness, living like Jesus, going to heaven. But the further we get into the Bible and the more we start reading in between the lines and really reading all of Scripture, uh, the more we find out that, uh, you know, there's more to this Christian life than we thought. There's a lot more going on here. And part of this package, again, part of our relationship with God is suffering. I'm going to take a look now at Philippians 1.29. We're going to talk about a grant. You know what a grant is, don't you? Something given to you. Like the federal government might give a grant to El Dorado Springs for a new park or something. You might win a grant for $100,000. And I'm going to talk about a grant now. Philippians 1.29. For it has been granted unto you or given to you for the sake of Christ that you should not only believe in him but that you might suffer for his sake. Well, that doesn't sound like a grant I want. I didn't sign up for that. But it's part of the Christian life. It has been given to you. It has been granted to you. You know, there it is. Belief in Jesus and suffering. Later in his life, Peter wrote this. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial that comes to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. Part of being a Christian is being in the spiritual war. Peter here challenges us to not be shocked or feel like something weird or strange is happening to us. You know, there's so many things that happen in life that are just plain strange. You know, just how in the world did that happen? How did I get in a conflict with that person? And what's this person got against me? Or why did I get sick in that situation? There's no way I, that could have happened. They're just Life is just sometimes a confused jumble of trials and tribulations that we just didn't see coming. They just kind of blindside us. And Peter is basically saying here in 1 Peter 4, he says, guys, don't be surprised. This is par for the course. Troubles, trials, temptations, hardship, suffering. It's just all part of the package. And I think one of the reasons that God brings so much suffering into our lives is that it's really what makes us grow the most as a believer. Um, Most of us, when things are going well, just don't really trust the Lord that much. We find most of our growth during the hard times. And God knows that. It's just the suffering is just a normal, natural 
part of the Christian life. And God uses us, uses it to refine us. John Newton, who wrote the song Amazing Grace, wrote an interesting poem about his experience in wanting to grow as a Christian. Now, he was an earnest guy, and, and he, he really wanted to grow closer to God, and, and so he, he just really prayed, you know, God, break through and, and, and sanctify me and make me holy and let me just be wholly devoted to you. And God did answer his prayer. But Newton didn't like the way God answered his prayer. Yet, um, God always answers us, but sometimes we don't like the answer. He got his request. He got what he asked for, but boy, it was not what he expected. And so Newton wrote a poem about this whole thing. And the poem is called These Inward Trials. I asked the Lord that I might grow in faith and love and every grace, might more of his salvation know and seek more earnestly his face. T'was he who taught me to pray, and he, I trust, would answer my prayer. But it has been in such a way as almost drove me to despair. I hoped that in some favored hour, at once, he'd answer my request and by his love's constraining power, subdue my sins and give me rest. Instead of this, he made me feel the hidden evils of my heart and let the angry powers of hell assault my soul in every part. Yea, even more, with his own hand, he seemed intent to aggravate my woe. He crossed all my fair designs. I schemed and blasted my gourds and laid me low. Why, Lord, I trembling cried, will you pursue this worm to death? This is the way, the Lord said, said that I answer prayer for grace and faith. These inward trials I now employ from self and pride to set you free and break thy schemes of earthly joy, that thou mayest seek thy all in me. You know, God answered, but boy, it wasn't a pleasant experience, was it? God used trials and tribulation and hardship to bring Newton closer to himself. So I would say one of the reasons that we are faced with and suffer so much as Christians is because it's how we grow best. Another reason I think we suffer a lot as believers is because we are so intimately connected to the life of Jesus. Our identity is sort of tied up with his identity. And I'm going to talk a lot about this this morning, about how we are united with and one with Jesus. Where he walks, we walk. What he experiences, we experience. The life that Jesus lived, after a while, sort of becomes the pattern of life that we live. One of the places that he walked was down some streets in Jerusalem on Good Friday. He walked from the point of his interrogation and beating all the way through the streets of Jerusalem 
out the gate and to the cross. And this path, this street, you can still see it today. It's clearly marked in Jerusalem right now. You could go there and walk down this road right now. It's called the Via Della Rosa. The way of suffering or the path of suffering. And we often identify this with Good Friday, which is good because we're kind of starting to move in that direction now. In the Christian year, we're starting to move toward Good Friday and Easter. But the Via Della Rosa, in my mind, doesn't just describe Good Friday or what Jesus went through on Good Friday. It describes his whole life. His whole life was just one life of continual suffering. Born in a very, to very, very poor parents, born in a manger, and then almost immediately uh, being hunted down by Herod and having to flee to Egypt with his parents, and then being raised and being misunderstood. And as he began his ministry, always having people oppose him, uh, people fighting against him, the scribes, Pharisees, Sadducees. Everybody was always against him. At one point, even his own family seemed to turn on him, and his brothers did not believe in him. And, you know, you just see time and time again Jesus being opposed and living this life of suffering. One writer says this about suffering. Whoever the Lord has adopted and deemed worthy of his fellowship ought to prepare themselves for a hard, toilsome, and unquiet life crammed with many kinds of evil for even though the son was beloved above the rest and in him the father's mind was well pleased yet far from being treated indulgently or softly while he dwelt on the earth he was not only tried by a cross but his whole life really was nothing but a sort of perpetual cross. And so, if he suffered like that, we're going to suffer too. Our life is linked to his life. And I'm going to spend quite a bit of time now just talking about how you, God can't really see you or relate to you, if you're a Christian, outside of Christ. Every time he sees you, he sees Jesus. We are united to him. We're we're one with him. And our identity is so incredibly bound up with the identity of Jesus that as you look at his life, you see, that's going to be my life. John 15, 20. Jesus said... A servant is not greater than his master's master. If they persecute me, they're going to persecute you. If they hate me, they're going to hate you. You're not better than me. You expect to go to heaven on a bed of ease? being babied and pampered all along the way? Not going to happen. Not going to happen. 
God may do many things for you, but he is not going to coddle you and baby you and make everything easy and live for you. Our life is so aligned with the life of Jesus that if he experienced it, we will experience it. I think it is in the writings of Paul, the Apostle Paul, that we are so identified with Jesus that 164 times in his writings, Paul says that you are in Christ. You were created in Christ. You were born again in Christ. You were saved in Christ. You will be raised in Christ. You suffer in Christ. You are sanctified in Christ. In Christ. 164 times just in Paul's writing alone. God can't see you outside of Christ. That's good news. It really is. You know, sometimes uh, I come across as being super serious and like you think this is bad news. No, this is not bad news. This is wonderful news. You are in Jesus. If you've put faith in him and given your life to him, his fate is your fate. You're going to heaven. Your sins are going to be forgiven. This is good news. But, ah, There's more to it. There's that element of suffering. Let's look at some of our, some of the verses that talk about our union with Jesus. 2 Corinthians 5.17 If anybody is in Christ, he is a new creation. Romans 8.1 There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. Ephesians 2.10 says that we have been created to do good works in Christ. Paul saw himself so united to Jesus that he almost pictured himself as being with Jesus on the cross. In Galatians 2.20, he said, I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. It's like Paul is saying, you know, the old me is just gone. It's just been crucified. And I've got a new life. I'm a new creation. And it's just really kind of Jesus living his life out through me. The Bible, when talking about our baptism, again, just sees us super united to Jesus. The Bible uh, explains that whole experience of baptism in a way that we see our identity with Christ. When you attend a baptism service, you're sort of watching a living video of what took place in that person's heart secretly. It's all public here. You get to see it. But before that, something took place internally in the person's heart, the person who was being baptized. So someone's standing there, ready to be baptized, say, in our church. He's standing there with the pastor in the water, and it's almost like he is standing there with Jesus on the cross. And then, in baptism, he dies 
with Christ and is buried in the water and immediately comes back to life, is resurrected, and lives for Jesus. Here's how Paul describes it in Romans 6. Do you, know, do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Jesus was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Again, just that intimate oneness with Jesus. Paul went so far to describe his life, his whole life. He he could kind of summarize his whole life in one word. First, excuse me, Philippians 121. Philippians 121. For to me, to live is Christ. That's it. Done. Mic drop. Game over. Why am I here? Christ. That's it. That's the only reason I get up in the morning, Paul said. That's the only reason I travel from town to town all around the Mediterranean area planting new churches. That's the only reason I write letters. That's the only reason I allow myself to suffer. Look at my body. You know, scars all over it from being beaten for Christ. Why do I do it? Because that's my life. Jesus is my life. That's the only reason I'm here. That's what Paul said. But I think we can kind of apply it to our lives as well too. Colossians 3. Set your mind on things above, not on things of the earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears then you also will appear with him in glory. Man, I've always been captivated by that phrase. When Christ, who is your everything, you wouldn't be here without him. You wouldn't be a Christian without him. You wouldn't have your sins forgiven without him. You wouldn't have a future without him. You wouldn't go to heaven without him. He is your life. Now, John, the gospel writer, a little bit more down to earth, not quite so maybe um, spiritual or whatever at this point, but uh, he kind of talks about agriculture. And he says, all right, guys, uh, that's actually not John. (laughs) It's Jesus who is saying this, but John records it. This is the way Jesus put it in agricultural terms. He said, guys, it's kind of like this. I am... Now let's talk about a vineyard. I'm the main vine. I'm the main plant here. And your branches. Okay? And the goal is to produce grapes. Right? We want to have grapes. That's not going to happen unless you abide in me. I'm the branch. You break off or you go your own way. You're dead. And you will not produce any fruit. My point here again is just that union with Jesus, that our life is his life. His life is our life. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you 
Abide in me. Stick with me. Hang in there. Hold on. Don't break yourself off from me. I'm the vine. You're the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is who will bear much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. So my point is that this is, all of this is to simply show that our identity is wrapped up and linked to the identity of Jesus. Your life is tied to his life. Your future is tied to his future. Your suffering is tied to his suffering. Wherever he went and whatever he did, you too will see that played out in your life. And one of the places that Jesus went, in fact, the place he actually lived was on that path on that road called suffering, the Via Della Rosa. Isaiah 53 um, talks more and more about the suffering of Jesus. It's very instructive to us, uh, written maybe 600 years before Jesus was born. I don't see how people can read something like Isaiah 53 and not see Jesus here. It's all about Jesus. Isaiah 53, 3. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. Isn't that an interesting description of Jesus? He was a man of sorrows. And he can certainly identify with your sorrows. Whatever it is that you're suffering right now, Jesus has already suffered it. So often we think, oh man, God just doesn't understand. God doesn't get it. You know, he feels so distant from me. He doesn't understand what's going on in my... Yeah, he does. Don't ever say to God, you don't get it. Man, he gets it better than you will ever get it. He understands what you're going through. And he's able to assist you and help you. Here's the way the writer of Hebrews put it. He says, uh, we don't have a high priest who's unable to sympathize with us and our weaknesses. But we have a high priest who in every respect has been tempted like us, yet without sin. Isaiah 53, 4. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. You know, it's important to remember that a large part of the suffering of Jesus is something nobody saw. It was hidden. We tend to focus on the suffering of Jesus that is visible. And people back then saw, with their own eyes, Jesus beaten. We saw, they saw Jesus bleeding. They saw Jesus carrying a cross down through the streets of Jerusalem. They saw Jesus nailed to a cross. They saw him hang there. They saw him die. 
there was a whole lot they did not see. The emotional, psychological, and spiritual suffering that Jesus went through is something that no one can even fathom or understand. We have no idea what he went through. And this is important here because a lot of you are going to go through suffering that nobody else sees. Nobody else understands. Nobody else gets. But again, Jesus has been there. He's done that. He has experienced suffering that people had no clue he was going through. It's talked about in Gethsemane. You know, Jesus almost died before he got to the cross. He almost died before he was even beaten. He almost died in the garden of Gethsemane. The weight, the crushing weight of what was about to happen to him simply overwhelmed him in the garden of Gethsemane. He almost died right there. Simply thinking about what was going to happen on Good Friday. Matthew 26, 37, in Gethsemane, he began to be sorrowful and troubled. And he said to his disciples, my soul is very sorrowful, even to the point of death. I'm about that far, guys. Luke twenty two forty four. And being in agony, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. When you feel the frustration of suffering alone, remember that Jesus has done the same thing. Most of his suffering was hidden from the public. And most of yours will be too. His most significant praying, agonizing, and suffering was done while he was alone. Some of you just, you know, I know you're thinking, but people just don't get it. People, they're not going to get it. People are not going to know what you're going through. They might try, they might pray for you, they might love you, but no one's going to really understand all that you're going through. You know, just hours before his interrogation, again, there in the Garden of Gethsemane, he asked one favor of his friends, Peter, James, and John. He said, guys, I'm going to go a little bit further into the garden here, and I'm going to pray, because I am just about at the end of things here. He knew what was coming. And he said, so guys, just, I want you to stay here and just pray for me, okay? And I'm just going to go a little bit further into the garden, and I'm going to pray. Just one request, that's all. Guys, all, all I'm asking is you just pray for me, okay? Did they? Maybe for a while, but they didn't pray very long because time after time he came back and found them asleep. That's loneliness. 
When you ask somebody to pray for you and they sleep, that's what it feels like to be lonely. Other people won't know what you're going through. I'll talk a little bit more here, just a second, about loneliness. The cross itself was a lonely, lonely place. We don't often think of the cross equating with loneliness. We usually think of suffering, blood, asphyxiation, gasping for breath, and then finally dying, a terrible death. And that was. But man, there was a lot more going on. And one of those things was loneliness. Judas had betrayed him. The disciples had all scattered all over the place. John was there. Some of the women were there at the foot of the cross. But for the most part, Jesus was all alone there on the cross. And then there was a moment at the very end that I have always felt was the loneliest moment in human history. The loneliest moment anyone has ever experienced. It was just maybe minutes before Jesus died. And he uttered these words. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That's loneliness. That is being all alone. And he did that for you. I'm going to turn the corner here a little bit. And I'm going to start lifting your spirits a bit here. Because there's some good news here. There is encouragement in another verse within Isaiah 53. Isaiah 53, 11. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. I think in one of the miracles of miracles, Jesus on the cross, in the anguish of his soul, somehow was able to uh, look down the corridors of time and see all of the good that would come from his suffering. He could look down the corridors of time and see people being saved and churches being planted and people being healed and people going to heaven. He could look down the corridors of time and just in a flash, in a moment, the Bible says he, he in his anguish saw what all of this was accomplishing and he was satisfied. Suffering always has a purpose. Are you going to see it? No. Are you going to like it? No. 
Is it all going to come together somehow and just to make you, bring you to the point where you can write a book about your experience? Probably not. But your suffering has a purpose. That's one of the conclusions that we can draw today. I, can, I conclude about three things. Number one, suffering uh, always has an ultimate purpose. Um, you're, you're not going to understand it. You're not going to like it. But, you know, there's always a reason why God does what he does in your life. Um, God is not just some kind of a random person who indiscriminately just kind of throw things into your life to make you miserable. It's not... God is not uh, against you. He is for you. He's working for you. And he is trying to refine you and remake you and make you more like Jesus and prepare you for heaven. Jesus is preparing you for heaven. And whatever he does in your life ultimately has a purpose. But you're probably not going to see it in this life. Secondly, God is Active in your suffering, not passive. The cross was not an accident. It was planned out from the beginning. The suffering of Jesus was not an accident. This was God actively using suffering to win your salvation. Isaiah 53, 6. All we like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. That's an active statement. God laid on him the iniquity of us all. Satan didn't put your sins on Jesus. The Romans didn't put your sins on Jesus. God did. God is active in your suffering, working out all things for your good. Third thing that I conclude is that our present sufferings are nothing compared to the glory that awaits us in heaven. You, you can't imagine the joy and the happiness and the fulfillment and the greatness and the, the wonder of being in heaven. In Romans 8, 18, we read, I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing to the glory that is to be revealed in us. It's like Paul said, just, just don't go there. Just don't go there. Don't even try to compare what you're going through with what you're going to get in heaven. Heaven is so much better and so much greater. We've been redeemed. We've been saved. We've been brought out of Egypt. We're on our way to the promised land, but we're still in the wilderness. I'm sorry, we're not there yet. You're still sitting here. You're not in heaven yet. So we're still in the wilderness And in that wilderness, every day we're going to be tried, we're going to be tempted, we're going to be tested, and, um, you know, God's going to be refining us. But as we go through these trials in the wilderness of life, Jesus has promised, never will I leave you and never will I forsake you. 
Lo, I am with you even to the end of the age. Jesus is with you every step of the way. So as together you walk with him down that Via Della Rosa, remember, he's always by your side. You've been listening to the Sunday morning message broadcast from Church of God Holiness in El Dorado Springs. Our messages are archived at www.eldochurch.com or to order compact discs or DVD videos of the messages, call the church at 417-876-2200. Thank you for listening.